Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. As I continue my crypto native journey, I've been spending time with leaders and pioneers of the emerging world of on chain credit. A few notable DeFi protocol platforms have emerged over the past few years. All share a common belief that DeFi can positively deliver a more efficient, transparent, and cost effective way to originate, structure, and finance debt. Their mission is to help broaden the addressable lender base beyond insurance companies, banks, and hedge funds, while eliminating the layering of fees embedded in the credit lifecycle. But for this new credit ecosystem to thrive and emerge as a viable conduit to finance the real economy beyond the proof of concept, these protocols need to solve real pain points. For example, are they enabling access to lenders who wouldn't otherwise have access to high quality private credit? Are they significantly improving on the net returns for investors? Are the underlying asset portfolios managed in a way that achieves resilience to the various risks typically faced by investors, such as interest rate, default, counterparty, or adverse selection? I'm excited to have as our guest today Sidney Powell, co founder and CEO of Maple Finance, an institutional on chain capital markets platform. An avid reader of economic history and biographies, Sid knows as much about the Hannibal era or Napoleon Europe as he does about securitization. He is one of the most impressive DeFi entrepreneurs I've met with a keen sense for capital formation, organizational development, and go to market strategies. He also knows when to pivot or adapt to achieve better product market fit. And he is not afraid to take on private credit giants to achieve his goals and deliver value to his backers, which include prominent crypto investors such as Framework Ventures or Polychain. Sid grew up in Australia and graduated from the University of Adelaide with a degree in finance. He comes from a background in debt capital markets and institutional banking, hence, he is well equipped to navigate the emerging crypto space while staying true to TradFi's first principles. During his career in traditional finance, he participated in over $3 billion worth of corporate bond issuance, established and ran a bond funding program in excess of $200 million. He understands the mandate of capital allocators, having managed treasury at Angle Finance, a non bank asset finance company which services small and medium-sized businesses. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So I grew up in Adelaide, which is a city in the south of Australia. And I grew up, I spent sort of all my life there up until my early 20s. And then I went to Melbourne when I uh, began my career in banking and finance. But my early passions were on the sports side, tennis. I played a few different activities and sports, but tennis was probably the one that, that I did the most of and that I enjoyed the most. And then outside of that, I used to do a lot of reading. So I, I really liked reading from a pretty young age. And I read a lot of history and biographies in particular. So read a lot of biographies of Hannibal, Napoleon, history books. Like I just kind of interested in big events in the past. So I see two things here. One is, and we've talked about your focus on physical exercise and athleticism, part of your hobbies. Would you say you're competitive by nature? Did you play tennis competitively? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I would say that was one of the things about me. I was always sort of very competitive growing up. Like I always took competition and winning very seriously. And tennis is one of those sports where, you know, it is sort of you versus another person. And it's not a team sport, so you can't rely on other people. So it's just sort of you competing. And so I'd say early on in myself, I, I observed that I would have to sort of dial back the competitiveness a little bit to not generate friction with other people. And I've kind of mellowed a bit over time, but I would say underneath it all, I am still particularly competitive. And so I liked reading when I talk about the books, I liked reading and it was always high achievers and people who accomplished a lot. And so I'd kind of use that as inspiration and sort of fed my drive a bit. No, that's great. I was a huge fan of reading such books as well. And being French also, I've read a lot about Napoleon and the influence that he had on France's history and European history. What I came away with at a very high level always was how much he accomplished by the age of 30. Yes, <laughs> me too. <laughs> Expectancy was shorter in those days. You look at it, you're like, wow. How do you get so much done? And I know he has his fans and foes and detractors, but you learn so much also from reading from the, the political construct of Europe at the time as well. 
Yeah, but accomplished so much across so many different spheres. So there's not just the, the military conquest. There was the Concordat with the Roman Catholic Church, which put in place a truce. There was the Code Napoleon, which is still the foundation of the French legal system today. And a lot of the legal systems that derived more from a legislative basis rather than, you know, like the, the English common law basis. Absolutely. And Ecole Polytechnique, one of the top engineering schools in the world, started on Napoleon. If you actually walk around Paris, if you pay attention, the number of engraved N's, the letter N in many, many different buildings, obviously implemented under Napoleon III and Haussmann were there, but I see you're familiar with the history. Well, that's great. I think, you know, biographies are also, to be perfectly honest, sometimes a lot more interesting than fiction. Because these were things that really happened. And I find myself transported when I read those. Yeah. I think it's always, even biographies that are about people who lived several hundred years ago, you can still find parallels with things that are going on today. You can, like an interesting biography I read last year was one on Ulysses S. Grant. And you look at what he was doing during the Reconstruction post-Civil War and how he was managing different personalities is not that dissimilar to like running a company and having an executive team. And you have to play a little bit of internal politics, but you can see how other people navigated those kind of challenges. And yeah, I always draw a lot of insights from biographies. So in terms of topics and specific aptitude, you went into a banking career. You're obviously in a field that straddles both technology, engineering, as well as finance, and not just the simplest corner of finance. It's uh, structured credit, lending, which tends to be a little bit more complex. What were the things you gravitated towards? Was this something that you developed in college that you knew you wanted to be a banker? That's an interesting question. As I graduated high school, I tended to spend more time on history and economics, but I definitely had an interest in the financial side of things coming from my enjoyment of economics. And so then as I went into college, I did finance degree and also a law degree. But I was definitely less, I think the law degree was useful for giving me a framework of analysis and critical analysis and being able to argue points. But I was definitely more interested in the finance side of things. And so I would say like coming out of university, I definitely wanted to go into a career in, more in finance. But it was a little, it's a little bit at odds in that I wouldn't consider myself a terribly like mathematically or numerically oriented person. Like I do tend to still gravitate more towards the humanities side of thinking. Got it. But certainly a mind for structure and how to structure things, right? Yeah. Frameworks, the macro, like zooming out, zooming out and looking at how you structure things. Even today, I would consider my biggest interest is how do you structure an organization? Yeah. So it's also architecture, right? At the end of the day, if you think about it and how the pieces fit together. And so, you know, I could see that even legal document, I like to say, because I've spent a lot of time looking at, I'm not a lawyer, legal documents in my career and continue to, and I've obviously coded hands-on, see a lot of parallels with the way you structure a program, a class, and a contract where you have these references and definitions and logic that's built in. It's very interesting. So in the evolution from college to starting Maple, walk me through that progression and and how you think you develop, you know, what is seems to be a good fit for the role you're in. Yeah. So when I graduated college or university, I went and joined a grad program at National Australia Bank. So that's one of the large commercial banks in Australia. And I actually began in the ops or operations area, which helped me like helped me get my foot in, in the door. But then I was always trying to edge closer towards investing or wholesale markets or investment decision making. And Eventually, I got over to credit risk, looking at financial institutions, and then from there to securitization. And working in credit risk, I could see that I didn't know how to structure a deal properly. So I could see that that was a gap I needed to fix. So I parlayed my way to a secondment in the securitization area and then ended up moving there permanently. And I learned a lot, like a really good amount from everyone I worked with in credit risk and then in that securitization team because I learned how to structure deal. I was working in debt capital markets, so I would have to deal with institutional investors. You do learn really good skills in just how to project manage when you're in an investment banking or institutional banking type team, like putting together crisp decks, good credit memos, understanding how to manage risk, and then also how to progress a deal from conception to final settlement and distribution. And so after I was working in there for a good couple of years, it was around 2017 that I I was actually thinking, 
I was contemplating, I sort of hit this impasse in my career where I was like, do I want to remain in the bank and kind of advance up the career ladder within a really large organization? But, you know, it would take a really long time and I'm probably not going to get put in charge of anything that important while I'm young. Or do I retool and go and learn, you know, software coding? But then I thought, well, I probably have to go and do a couple of years at university or in some kind of coding boot camp, and then I'm going to be really terrible when I start. Or do I just go to a different part of finance and kind of learn a unique set of skills that, you know, really helps my human capital side of things? And then the opportunity actually came up from a recruiter to go and work at this smaller commercial leasing company and effectively do what I had been doing, which was securitization, which is, you know, in really simple terms, it's helping lending companies to source the money that they need to lend. And you do that through effectively issuing like structured bonds. And I was going to have an opportunity to go and do that at a smaller company. And so I was going to go from deal side where you have, you know, one view of how business works, a lending business to being on the inside of a lending business, actually seeing how the sausage was made. So I went across, I took the opportunity. They were a fast growing company at the time. And so I could see a lot of upside if I was able to deliver some transformative change at that company. And so I went and when I got to the other side and I was at a lending company, seeing how it works, you get familiar with all the reporting systems and how they underwrite credit and how they put together reporting for you know banks and other investors. And I could see how broken all of those different pieces are. It's not an exaggeration to say you have about six to 10 different parties that you have to pay. And that the way that they all interact with each other is pretty much through Excel spreadsheets sent through emails. And so that was kind of what gave me the initial insight into the problems that we later tried to solve by building Maple and is part of the reason that I see such huge potential in the automation that you can do with smart contracts on a blockchain. But anyway, so I got over to that company and they were growing really, really fast for a period of time. And then they went through a period where they needed to restructure and then came out the other side sort of owned by a private equity company where I could see, you know, that company was going to grow. But since we're just part of a private equity portfolio, there again, wasn't going to be that kind of upwards opportunity for me. And so I kind of realized that I wanted to own something and have the kind of upside of building something myself and a piece of that. And so that was then part of the impetus where I knew it was sort of time to jump across and start Maple. That's great. And so you essentially turn your career evolution into further upside by just taking control of your own destiny, but also identifying from the inside a problem. What's interesting is I find that sometimes, but not always, but often, the best businesses are actually started not by people who dream up an idea in sort of the ivory tower of the ideation process, right? Saying, okay, let's dream up an idea. But it actually comes from something that they faced internally at a business. And that's why, you know, I think a little bit, if not more experience from the inside on the part of entrepreneurs, to me is a de-risker, right? Because if they're going to solve something that's very specific to their industry, they will have a more thorough understanding. Presumably, they will have a network of people they can both validate this with as well as vouch for it, vouch for their own performance. And so it all fits together much nicer than in the abstract. And here, clearly, you saw firsthand where the inefficiencies lied and then started thinking creatively about how do I fix for that? Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. I think it's interesting when you consider like, what is the right age to go and start a company or become an entrepreneur? And I'd say it's probably risen in you know the, the present time we're in. Maybe in the early 90s, or around the year 2000, it was fine because software development was such a new skill to just have been tinkering and you could go and like found something in your very early 20s. But if I look at how pervasive technology is in every sector now, I think to have a really successful large company, you need to have some specialist expertise, right? Like it's, it's like saying, could you go and win a Nobel Prize in some field as an undergrad student or a postgrad student? Probably not. 200 years ago, maybe, because you could very genuinely be a Renaissance person because there was just less knowledge to consume to be at the top of your field in any area. And now there is just much more specialist knowledge you have to know to be able to have an impact or derive an insight and see an opportunity. And so I think if you're doing it in finance, you probably have to have worked in the finance sector in some way for maybe five, seven years before you know enough to know what is missing and where an opportunity is. 
I think it's kind of interesting that, I mean, Jeff Bezos started Amazon around the age of 30 or 31. Yes. And there's just certain things you can't invent out of thin air. And there's obviously the Steve Jobs and the Bill Gates examples, but people tend to forget that these are sort of lottery tickets, right? There are very, very few cases where that actually works. And so as an investor, you should never bet on these highly unlikely outcomes, no matter how big or large the expected value is conditional on hitting the strike. I think it's important to think about the best risk-adjusted outcome there. Yeah, that's true. On Bill Gates, though, I was just going to say, because I had been listening to a podcast on him the other day, but at the time at which he started Microsoft, he probably was one of the most expert people in the world in his area, because I think he'd been using compute time at his school for, you know, since he was like 12 or 13. So he probably was, in fact, near the apex of that skill set. And to your point, at the time, however, there wasn't as much subject matter expertise. It was so new. Yes, I agree. That if you had spent the time, the years, you were probably ahead of the curve there versus the broad universe, which is no longer the case. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the foundation. How does the initial idea conceptualize itself? How does it come together? Did you have co-founders? How did it come together? Walk me through the timeline and the story there. Yeah, for sure. So I've got a co-founder called Joe, and we initially started talking about it probably mid-2018, which is after you'd had the previous cycle of kind of crypto asset asset price appreciation had collapsed. And so we're talking about in the context of, you know, with my background in securitization, I was we would do a securitization deal where you maybe have five tranches or layers of bond. And with the idea of the blockchain, I was kind of interested, could you just run that ad infinitum? Could you have you know, 100 tranches of bond, which are trivially easy to produce because you just automate all the rules. And so that was kind of the initially piqued my interest. Could you effectively make every single dollar in a $1 billion transaction a different tranche? And those would be things that just aren't like physically or rather conceptually possible when you're working with papered agreements. The amount of friction and transaction costs is too high. So that was kind of what led us to start researching the idea for Maple. And then the original idea for Maple, which was a a white paper back at the start of 2019 that I wrote, was could we just do a tranche securitization on chain? But you go through that and you go through this initial elation that you've had this fantastic idea and you start writing it out. And then you go through the trough of despair as you realize all of the limitations that would hold it back. And so we wrote that white paper in January, February, 2019. Then over 2019, found a software development company that could build a proof of concept where we just plugged our own savings into it. And keep in mind, this was still so early in DeFi. DeFi was like five companies. You had Compound had just released V2, Maker, Set Protocol, Dharma. And so people were saying, well, DeFi is never going to be a thing. But as we were also building it, we were going through the process of having to do wireframes ourselves, think in product, basically act as product managers, do things like the logo and branding. And then anyway, we built it at the end of 20 and released a proof of concept of it at the end of 2019. And it got some initial fanfare, but we realized that there were no compelling assets. In a securitization, you need a basket of assets that throw off yield. And then what you're doing is you're tranching out the risk of that basket of assets and allocating cash flows. And so there were no on-chain assets that threw off cash flows, yielded interest, or that you could really securitize or tranche out. So we quickly pivoted and then decided to start doing peer-to-peer loans because we're like, well, we will, and this is kind of, you had to dog food it yourself as an entrepreneur, but we thought, well, there's no yield-bearing assets, so we'll just make the yield-bearing assets ourselves. We'll do loans on chain. And then we're like, okay, do we start with peer-to-peer loans? We should read up on Lending Club and how that worked. And we found a developer to build a basic proof of concept. So by then we had, we actually probably had the most advanced smart contracts around doing lending in that way, because we could pull capital and then originate peer-to-peer loans that were all on chain and people could make their repayments on chain. And this was like February, March of 2020. And we would use some of our own money, but the quality of people who were coming in was just so low. You had some initially friendly people who wanted to take out small loans, but it was difficult to underwrite. And we realized that we didn't want to be a consumer lender. And we felt it would be very risky from a business sense to just lend consumer loans to people on chain. And also it doesn't really scale. So We kind of went through the wilderness in early 2020. And then around April, May, 
we had the insight to combine the two ideas. So shift lending back to institutional lending because there were starting to be firms that would borrow on chain and you could competently assess the risk of because they could provide you with management accounts and where the size of the loan would be large enough that it would justify the time spent to underwrite them. And But the insight though was combining that because otherwise you just have Lending Club on chain. And the problem with Lending Club is that nobody wants to syndicate every single loan. So instead we had this idea of, we'll allow people to put money into a smart contract and then somebody can serve as an underwriter for that pool of capital in the smart contract. And so then a borrower who comes to the platform only has to deal with that party who's the underwriting expert. And that's a delegate. And that would give a borrower certainty of funding. They could share their financials confidentially with that person. And then they could also negotiate terms way more efficiently than just putting out an offer to the whole world to see who wanted to fund it. And so that ended up being the final concept for Maple, which was we would have a pool, the pool could be tranched and have this subordinated first loss capital, and it would hold effectively a portfolio of different loans or fund multiple loans so that you would achieve diversification. And so that was around June, July, we rewrote the white paper and then set about raising capital. And so it really was like September 2020. So about 18 months, you know, more than 18 months since that very first white paper that we're able to to source the initial capital to then go full-time and professionalize it. So at the time, so you say go full-time, are you full-time, you and Joe full-time on the project or you're still working and doing this on the side? At that point in time, at that point, we're just doing it on the side. So from January, 2019 until September, 2020, we both had other jobs. And so I was just doing nights and then every weekend I'd go to the local campus or the local library for Melbourne University or RMIT in the city in Melbourne. And I'd just work on white papers and pitch decks and wireframes for how the product would work. That's amazing. And great dedication because it's hard. You know, oftentimes early pre-seed or seed investors really require that the team be full-time and take the full risk. So the fact that you were able to actually put it all together probably took a little bit more time, but had the stamina to put in the extra hours is quite fascinating to me. So you go out and you try to raise capital at the time, you know, we're entering the pandemic, but we're past the Armageddon phase. And very quickly, we get into this hyper-stimulative environment. Cryptocurrencies are obviously rallying in the second half of 2020. How do you go about pitching your project? You're in Australia, not necessarily like being in San Francisco, for example, where you can go up the road and meet all the top VCs in the world. How do you go about that? Yeah, that was so to get the fundraise done, we needed to get a couple of advisors and then put a pitch deck together, then have the advisors make introductions. And so it was really, it was this kind of, it seemed like this initially extremely difficult thing because we'd never done it before. So you don't actually have kind of fluency in the process of how it works. So you can read a lot of blog posts and interviews on how fundraising works. But what really helped was just having advisors because they would give us introductions and so put us in touch with VCs and then we go and pitch them. And also giving you advice on how do you structure the deal, whether you need to upsize people and, and just all of the minutiae of, of actually closing the deal and, and getting it done. But I would say the macro environment was tremendously favorable. So DeFi was really taking off, was in the midst of, right in the midst of DeFi summer around September 2020. And so the appetite and, and the availability of capital was actually very high. It was funny though, because in August, we had this kind of debate, Joe, my co-founder and I, of should we actually raise capital now or should we just try and build the product, bootstrap it, and then raise capital once it's live? But doing that would have been way more difficult. Like actually raising capital enabled us to hire really good developers, probably got meant we got to market way, way quicker. And so I think that was the right move, but it was a decision-making leap to actually make the call, okay, we're going to go ahead and do this. And I think a lot of people who are trying to make start on an entrepreneurial journey struggle is they just don't make enough decisions and they don't take enough risk in just pulling the trigger and deciding to go for it. They procrastinate. And so I think what we were good at was just not procrastinating. Like once we decided to go ahead and do it, we got two advisors. They introduced us to firms like Framework who participated in the seed, as well as you know helping us just close the round, decide how large to size it, and then getting moving from there. But once you close the round, then you have to start hiring a team as a nobody project that people have never heard of before. So <laughs> then you just have a whole other set of challenges once you complete a raise. Yeah. 
the hard work actually begins when the money, the wire hits the bank account. You know, there tends to be a, it's good to celebrate the milestone, obviously very, very hard to raise capital. But in many ways at that stage, you're bound with a set of investors who will be patient, will take the long view because that's what the venture game is, but they also, they're going to want to see a return on capital. So that time clock starts ticking, got a burn rate. You've got a lot of things that start coming to the front of your daily preoccupations. Do you think you would have been able to raise money today as easily as you did that time around? Do you think it's harder now? 100%. Yeah. There's no way we could have raised as easily as we did back then in today's environment. What would be like your advice for people trying to raise money right now in this current environment? People trying to raise money now in the current environment That's a tough one. I would say they have to have a viable plan for monetization and growth of their project. Like I would say back then, even looking back on it now, a lot of projects and founders that I met might not have been like a venture scale business. And they might also not have had a clear idea of how what they were doing was going to could be monetized. It was often just an idea for some really cool technology. And then that idea was kind of propped up by the general ebullience and euphoria in the space at the time. So I would say that's probably one of the main things is just like having an idea where there's a clear path to like monetization and how they're going to go to market with that product. And then what would be the other two elements? I think they have to have shown some, like if I was looking at it now, I'd probably want some people who had shown a track record or some kind of greater than average marker of success in something related to what they're doing. So if you have somebody who's presenting something for like an institutional lending platform, then seeing that they have a background in that space, or if they don't have a background in that space, that they've built some kind of prototype or developed some kind of prototype before and and shown an ability to pivot and actually like execute on that. And then the other one is probably location. So when we did that, we were in Australia at the time. Now we're both based overseas. I just moved to Miami recently. And so I think being around a community of uh, investors or other founders, but basically I think there are returns on being in an area where there is a lot of groundbreaking stuff happening in the field that you want to build in. It's very important. Your last point is very important. I'm actually, there's a founder I advise in Web3 and you know they're a distributed organization. They're getting, they've got a seed round, they've got capital, they've got good traction. And you know my advice to him, and to the team was to trying to move into a hub for the externalities that you've outlined. The other thing I will say is, and we're moving from a world of the abundance of financial capital to a world where it is not necessarily scarce, but it's definitely going to be much harder to get your hands on capital. I think there's going to be a re-equitization of aggregate cap structures out there because the cost of debt is increasing. And in the venture world, the way it manifests itself is we're going to move from be able to fund R&D, essentially, outsource, externalize R&D, with not necessarily a clear roadmap as to product market fit, growth, user adoption, engagement, monetization, to a world where that matters a lot more. Because in a world with scarcity and higher rates, and higher hurdles, you need to create a lot more growth to justify putting capital to work. And so it's going to force capital into businesses that have that edge. So the premium that went to engineering over the last 10 years, I don't think it's going to disappear, but it's going to be a lot higher premium in people who understand how to take businesses to market. And that was sort of lost, I think, along the way. So I think you make an excellent point there. So with respect to Joe and you, how did you guys split the roles? And then you talked about hiring at a stage where you haven't convinced. I mean, at that time, things are on the way up. Now, a lot of bad press. I think in different ways, it creates a challenge to attract talent. How did you go about attracting talent? Yeah, it's a good question. Just on what you said before, though, just before that question, I do agree at a macro scale, I think it's been an interesting interplay between the use of debt and equity in capital formation, particularly on the venture side of things. And I look back historically at a lot of the really large companies that still survive in some form or other today, like Standard Oil now survives as a bunch of different, you know, petroleum drilling, processing refining distribution companies today, but they used a lot more debt in an age where the cost of capital for debt was higher. And yet over the last probably 30 years, there's been, I would say, an underuse of debt in emerging and middle market sectors, but probably an overuse of debt at both a national like sovereign level and really large company level. And so 
But I, I do think the use of debt can be healthy in companies because it encourages keeping an eye on profitability, on actually monetize, making sure that you create products that can be monetized and watching your costs. So I do think that, that is going to be a theme over the next few years now that kind of zero interest rate is over or presumed over. In terms of division of responsibilities, Joe and I split it generally on an external internal line. So when I say that, I mean, I generally do more BD, marketing, investor relations, and more of those externally focused focused responsibilities. And then Joe will typically do more of the kind of internal focused responsibilities. So product, engineering, neither of us are technical, but working with the engineering team and the product team and operations. Although now we sort of have a, a more rounded executive team. We're actually shifting both toward in recognition of kind of our external circumstances, which are that liquidity in the blockchain and digital asset space is tighter. We both are spending more of our time on kind of business development focused initiatives, like getting new partners to launch new pools. So it has kind of changed and it just sort of responds to the external and internal pressures on the company. Yeah, that makes sense. So what about talent? Like where do you find your best talent to meet some of the growth needs? You really have to hustle. So our first few hires, we had to use our network a lot. And then I was posting jobs and screening candidates every day, probably more than a third of my time for the first few months. And we had a breakthrough when we used a recruitment agency to get to get an early engineer who's now our tech lead for, for the smart contract side. But then once you get a few of those pieces in place, then you can sort of build around them. So I would say recruitment agencies helped early on because the environment was that we had to compete really heavily for talent. And so you needed a third party to kind of endorse your project. And that is one of the things a recruitment agent can do when they pitch you to people who are looking for a job in the space. And they're also doing a lot more outbound. Would have been way, way, way more difficult for me to go and email everybody who is at EY in the blockchain team or Maker in their smart contract team back then when we were just starting out. So I was putting up job ads and screening candidates, but having a recruitment agent really helped. One of the best decisions we made early on was to hire our own internal recruiter because they just paid for themselves many, many times over in terms of saving the 20, 25% commission fee that you would pay to a recruitment agent otherwise. And they also then help you develop a professional hiring process. So there is one person we hired on our marketing team who in before she came into our pipeline or even met us, she had already started the hiring process for Google. And then we were able to complete, I think, four interviews and a roundtable, as well as a skills assessment in within a two-week process. So we actually beat, we completed that inside Google's entire hiring process and were able to get this great candidate that way. And so that is one of the things we did to attract talent was we just professionalized our process. They would meet three people from the team. They would get sent a psychometric test and a take-home exam. Then we'd do a roundtable so that we could identify any issues that anyone had with them. And then we'd make an offer. And typically we could do that within you know two or three weeks. I am so glad to hear you say this. And for listeners, so important. It's a topic that I care about a lot in organizational development. I also happen to be a big fan of organizational development, although it's not necessarily my upbringing, but I've built businesses. I help advise businesses that need to think through those structures. And the people function is one of the most underrated because in general, HR, quote unquote, gets a bad rep of sort of like that cost of doing business. But if done well, and if engineered from the start, it actually creates, to your point, a process. And if you think about the nature of the businesses that we're involved in, they're all about human capital. And managing that means the acquisition of that capital, the management of that capital throughout is critical. And the companies that do better are the ones, I mean, subject to having enough resources. But if you think about it, to your point, it saved you a lot of money by being done right. And I just think it's overlooked. And too many people look at it as a distraction when it actually is not, because it's saving time, founder's time, it allows you to build an organization from the top down as we know. It allows you to fill in the functional organizational chart with the right key people as opposed to building organizations around the idiosyncrasies of people and their personalities, which never scales. Another mistake that I see is, again, you build around people because you're trying not to offend them and you want to make sure their status is preserved and there's all these nuances. You got to think functionally. You create those boxes and then you need to fill those boxes. And then you need a function within your company that helps you fill those boxes. So I'm really happy to hear you say that. And I would think, not 
all of it, but I would think a big part of your early success is tied to your foresight and seeing that earlier on. We've always sort of thought about how do we create the right frameworks and incentives and feedback loops within the organization so that it functions without the direct intervention or it doesn't just micromanagement's a bit of a dirty word, but how can it function at a high performing level if I'm away for a day or if Joe and I aren't able to intervene in a specific decision? Yeah. I mean, that's what makes it resilient, ultimately, and scalable. So let's talk about the business itself now. So you've described how you arrived, you developed your thesis, you arrived at where you are today, where you have this platform where you're enabling these delegates to really take on the underwriting, take first loss risk, and essentially be aligned also with the overall, you know, all the different stakeholders in the business. But if you think about now go to market, we talked about it, and what you're focused on, which is scaling. So what is your approach to capturing market share and continuing to generate product market fit? You started with a low-hanging fruit where you're targeting market maker balance sheets, which were crypto native. They were a natural borrower on chain. There was definitely an inherent concentration risk. I wouldn't call it adverse selection necessarily here, but definitely a concentration risk. You talk to us a little bit about how you're moving away from that and expanding your reach in terms of the types of assets. And then on the other side, you know, the money and the inflows that you're seeing on the financing side of the equation. Yeah. So when you create a marketplace, you have to think of, do you focus first on demand or supply? And then also a question that precedes that is which side is demand and which side is supply? So are we supplying borrowing opportunities? As in, does Maple supply borrowing opportunities or does it supply lending opportunities? One, supplying borrowing opportunities, it's treating the deposit of capital like your supply side and treating the people who borrow like demand. And you can reverse that and look the other way. But I think ultimately it actually depends on the market circumstances. And so I would say at the moment, you know, or rather in 2020, 2021, there was an abundance of market makers who could borrow. And because of the general bull market, they were minting pretty good profits. And so they were like relatively good credits. But you also didn't have a ton of opportunities. The space wasn't advanced enough to do something at a large scale like real world asset lending. What we found is it's really important for us to be more resilient by diversifying the lending opportunities, which in my book means we need to have more delegates, more a greater number of pools running different strategies. And to really do that, because there just aren't enough crypto native industries or subsectors, you have to do real world asset lending. And so that's been a big focus this year to diversify and, and make us more resilient so that we're not overexposed to this kind of crypto cycle where market makers are more profitable in a bull market than they're subdued in a market like today. And so two or three weeks ago now, we launched the accrue pool and that does tax credit receivables finance. So it is a pool that is having a real beneficial impact on small businesses in the US who are impacted by impacted by COVID in that it will write a loan to an originating company called Intero. And then Intero will go and do loans against IRS tax rebates for small businesses. So it's actually generating real economic benefit for those small businesses. But for us, strategically, it's a breakthrough in that now we have loans that are tied to events in the real world are not really connected to the crypto cycle. And we will build more lending strategies off that by finding more pool delegates who can act as underwriters and do those types of lending. So that's one. And the other thing is we don't want to abandon the core franchise, which was lending to on-chain market makers and market makers, hedge funds, and delta neutral traders. We developed a pretty good track record there, but the product was only able to accommodate uncollateralized loans. And so what we've looked at now is beefing up the product so that it can do active collateral management because we've got this opportunity where all the CFI lenders have blown themselves up. And so there's a wide open field where there's not a ton of competition and we can take position ourselves to be the dominant lender there. And so when that market comes back, people will, of course, want to borrow again because they borrow for leverage. But if we have the product in place that can do active collateral management, then we will take a very high proportion of that market share. It's really hard to see a new CFI lender getting funded who just goes and replicates the old model. But I think if we offer a product that has a transparency of loans on chain and is non-custodial and that you use smart contracts, but pair that with active collateral management, then I think we have a dominant product there. There's definitely white space to capture. And to your point, it's not like it's those needs are going to go away, but I find it, and I agree with you, I find it very hard that someone might go out there and essentially trying to start a new genesis 
from the ground up, right? I find it hard to believe, and maybe it will happen. But I think we have such a great opportunity to redefine the plumbing that supports trading in the industry. I'm encouraged to hear you talk about how you're enabling that through the platform. Is the goal to make it really plug and play for sources of capital that want to be involved, want to lend into that type of risk, can do so in a fairly seamless manner? Yes. You should always be striving as close to Amazon's one-click, one-click buy button as possible or one-click purchase. So we want people to just be able to come, complete KYC, deposit into a pool with ideally one, one to two clicks. They should just be able to view the pool that they want and then deposit in it straight away. That's amazing. That's ideal. And in terms of monetization, right, and revenue generation, so we talk about encouraging and capturing deposits, but what is the main revenue generation strategy and what are the streams of revenues that you can count on for? We've talked about diversification, certainly, at the asset level and just the underlying asset base that the business is based on. But what are the different revenue streams that you envision being able to generate? And what do you see the growth prospects for each of those revenue streams? So in the ecosystem, you've got a couple of different important ways to think about the revenue. So because it's a protocol, we want parties like delegates to be able to use it and and collect fee revenue for act- acting as underwriters there. And so we have delegate revenues that would come from origination fees, which are paid by the borrower effectively to reflect the cost of the cost of due diligence and structuring a loan. And then there's an additional platform fee that a borrower could pay on top of that, which in each case, these fees will go a portion to the delegate and a portion to the Maple protocol for effectively to pay for the service of operating the tech. And uh, so you have the origination fee, which is paid by a borrower up front, and that's reflected in a reduction of the amount of loan they receive. So, you know, they take out a loan of a million bucks, but they get 990000 That would reflect an origination fee. Then you have a service or platform fee, which is paid on top of the interest that a borrower pays, and that's a cost effectively paid to reflect the technology and as well as the the delegates time in servicing the loans and then you have also kind of called like a management fee which comes as a deduction from interest received by the lenders so that's effectively the lenders paying for a service of also getting the benefit of this technology and the underwriting service provided by the delegates and so that is taken by the smart contracts and deducted from the interest payments made by the borrowers before it goes back to the pool where it's can be claimed by the people who lent or deposited into the pool. And so I think of those fees as kind of a mix. It's kind of similar to Stripe where you've got this large network technology. And so your fee is generally going to be a proportion of the usage of the platform. And yeah, it reflects the scale of the platform, but it's charged as a percent, effectively a percentage of the transaction volume running through. So you remain convinced, however, that your on-chain credit approach and the ecosystem you're creating can deliver a more efficient, transparent, cost-effective way to originate structure and finance assets. Like even when counting, because there's obviously an efficiency aspect to what you've built. Do you believe that ultimately net of fees down the road, this justifies itself? Yes, 100%. Having worked in both a bank and a non-bank lending company, I can 100% say that this is entirely, this is 100 times better than running a loan management system in either banks as they are today or non-bank lending companies as they are today. Because if you think about it, banks, the underlying infrastructure on which the financial system runs today, the core primitive, like your unit is a bank account, right? Like if you have a fund, you have a bank account. If you have a business, you have a bank account. There is not good reporting technology that can sit and read bank accounts. That's why you have multi-billion dollar companies like Plaid, which are entirely like their entire business model sits on being able to interact with bank accounts because they're such difficult technology to engage with. On the blockchain, you have the concept of a wallet and the fact that you can program how a wallet will work instantly makes it a much better set of infrastructure to build financial products on. And so I think that the competitive dynamic is that for us, the service we provide is to borrow is its access to debt capital to expand your business or operate your business. But to the delegate, it's a set of tools and infrastructure to run a lending business that is way more competitive than and lower cost than what they could do if they had to run it in the, the conventional way. And when I say conventional way, I mean pay JP Morgan for a bank account, pay another software provider to scrape that bank account or pull reporting, or you pay a bunch of analysts to take CSV extracts of your bank account, put it into Excel, and then you know spend three days processing it. 
So those processes all happen manually, but they have a cost. You have to pay people's salaries. It takes time to process and do reporting. Whereas with a blockchain, the second a loan payment is made by one of the borrowers on Maple, we can it gets captured in a reporting dashboard that can be visible to anyone because it is just read from the public blockchain. And we can then have a whole set of conditions which are triggered by that loan repayment so that if you are lending into that pool, you can now see your interest accrual balance tick up because a borrower just made a loan repayment seconds ago. And so what it does, it automates the back and middle office of running a lending company. And so ultimately, I think any company that is running a lending business will be able to either offer the same interest rate to a borrower and make a higher profit on it or make the same dollar profit, but offer at a lower interest rate. And so naturally, they will just outcompete the incumbents. And and that's how I see the industry evolving from here. Like there's definitely blockers at the moment, but that's ultimately the sort of the overarching direction I see it going. Yeah, definitely the edge and the intended edge of the business model, which I agree. I mean, the way you outline and you lay it out, especially considering your knowledge of under the hood and how it works in banking 1.0, 2.0, it makes perfect sense. So if we think about the world we're in now, which is a much different world than when you were first setting yourselves up and to allow lending, for example, to these market makers that were thriving in a bull market. Do you believe that you can broaden the addressable investment base beyond just a few of those use cases? Like who are the allocators ultimately that come in that you're chasing after right now? And I guess it's also a way to try to glean from you, what is the impact of the crypto winter on your business? And let me refine this a little bit. So we've seen you know, other players in the field, whether they're direct or competitors, or they're playing in the same arena. You've seen the block tower centrifuge deal where you know there's a strategic partnership, in a sense, is very intimate and somewhat incestuous there, where you're using the AUM to start bootstrapping usage on the platform and to start originating risk. You haven't announced anything similar. So how do you grow the deposit base in an environment where there's more crypto skepticism? I think so 12 or 18 months ago, I would have said the key was to get capital from off-chain and bring it on-chain. So you know, go pitch a hedge fund, go pitch a family office, go pitch a pension fund. I think right now in the present environment, you have to look on-chain for your sources of capital. So now I look at it and I go, I'm instead going to go and try and pitch an an on-chain hedge fund, an on-chain yield fund, or a DAO, or crypto ultra high net worth individuals for our capital, because they're already in stable coins and they're already on-chain. And so I think that is tactically the right approach is to develop products for them and they're very risk off. So that's what we're looking at in the near term. I think how we differentiate ourselves or how we've done a good job differentiating ourselves from our competitors in the the past has been ability to distribute and source partnerships. So whilst we haven't sourced, we haven't had large scale partnerships like that, that we've relied on. We've instead have many more parties who might deposit anywhere from between 10 to 40 million. So it's a lower, less intertwined partnership than the one you mentioned before, but we're trying to achieve a more diversified base just because I think one of our major lessons from 2022 was just diversification. And so that even extends to the partners that you work with. But I would say that we did see some of those partnership in 2022. So Blocktower was running a pool on the platform for a while. I think it got to about 50 million. Genesis ran one shortly after that that was at about 70 million. And so we've had those partnerships in the past, but what we want to make sure that we do though is still build off a foundation of diversification amongst all sides, all three sides. So borrowers, delegates and lenders. It makes sense. It's a sound approach. I think if it works, it will make for a much more robust business without the inherent business counterparty risk that exists with those highly concentrated partnerships. At least it is my view. So as we get to this end of this conversation, you know, you and I have talked about what you want to be, quote unquote, when you grow up, what kind of firm, you know, I wouldn't say equivalent because it's going to be different. But if you look at the TradFi world, and what you're trying to emulate or replicate, and where you're trying to get into, what would that be? And how would you qualify success? I think we position ourselves as infrastructure. And so it is difficult to find an exact corollary or counterpart. So there's two firms I look at a lot in that vein. On the credit side, I think our ultimate final boss is probably Aries. So if I look at what they have, they have a competence in credit underwriting and structuring and business development. So developing relationships with 
institutional allocators, whether it's pension funds or otherwise, but they don't have any technology underpinning that. Like in effect, and they probably find this insulting, but I think most of the organization, if you peel back the hood, is going to just be running on Excel. And so the goal is, can I displace that by building technology and then bolting on the competence of underwriting or, you know, having a set of underwriters on our platform in the form of delegates? And so can infrastructure muscle out, muscle in on their niche by Maple having credit underwriting ability and good relationships of distribution with things like institutional allocators like pension funds. The other one actually that's similar to them would be Millennium. So another way to look at Maple is it's kind of like a Millennium for credit in that each delegate can kind of be thought of as a pod who operates a different lending or credit strategy on the platform. And then sitting above that, we have this this umbrella, which is Maple's infrastructure, which allows them to spin up new pools process repayments, handle reporting, and source deal flow. The other one I would use is Visa, just because I think they've been the most successful financial network in history in terms of what they've built and the pervasiveness of their product. So I would like to be kind of a cross between Visa for Visa for credit and credit deals and Aries. Look, I think it's ambitious, but at the same time, you have to aim for this step function change right? In that one example is not enough to define what you're trying to achieve and what can be achieved through the technology and the ecosystem that, that you're building. The Millennium model is also some one that we talked about, and I agree 100%. I think there is, uh, not only because I'm familiar with it, having worked at Millennium and understanding how these firms are structured, but also because I believe that no matter what ends up being the path, in as much as risk is being originated and invested in or against through your infrastructure, through your platform, you can't detach yourself from the ultimate success of your investors and the ultimate quality of the credit that's being underwritten. So the notion of the quality of credit underwriting, the notion of risk management across your platform and how you think about it as you architect it, is very important because there is a reputational aspect tied to the fact that if the platform is perceived to attract quality investors to be a place where quality collateral is being originated, then it builds on itself. And as we know, credit is all about trust and it's about track record. So you're definitely bringing transparency. You're definitely bringing accountability and time to insights to a minimum. And then you need to sustain the test of time in terms of the reliability of the cash flows that are being created on the platform. So I think it makes sense. And your other two names that you brought, I think fit nicely in sort of the additional enhancements that the platform brings. It's been wonderful chatting with you, Sid, today. Really enjoyed it. I think we could you know, chat for a few other hours. I mean, you're building something that's not only very ambitious, but you've come a long way. You're definitely at the forefront of the industry in that sense. And someone that I know from talking to others in the industry that people look up to as to what you've accomplished. So thank you very much for spending the time with us today. We certainly learned a ton and I wish you the best in continuing to build the business. Yeah. Thanks, Maxime. Really appreciate it. Really enjoyed this conversation and, and a variety of questions. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management, LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. 